people who have a hard time with teammates or working in teams or that emotional intelligence piece, if they have a low four or nine score, it's a clear mark or indicator that for the type one, they see their emotions as something that needs to be bottled up and that I need to communicate a certain image of perfection. I need to uh, create an image, not to say an image, but I have to carry and conduct myself in such a way that I can't make any mistakes. And so the internal pressure that that puts on someone um, over time, chronically, creates burnout. In some of the most powerful coaching work that I've personally received and then do my best to facilitate for others, I've really recognized that the role of the coach, at least to me personally, is more about facilitating, guiding, asking questions so that the client or coachee themselves can come to the answers that feel most empowered, aligned, and inspired. As opposed to telling someone what we think we need to do, that's a little bit more in the realm of a consultant. And every single time that I've been guided through an effective coaching session, I've always left as if there was many light bulbs that just got turned on from the inside. And I felt so much more empowered in the process. Now for me in the work that I do, level zero or level one utilizes Jason's inner compass assessment because it's been so helpful to uncover the root cause motivation, the the fear, the desire, the shame, the belief structure that is driving so many of our behaviors and how we experience the world. And if you would like to take Jason's inner compass assessment and more specifically, hop on a call with me to interpret it and purchase some coaching sessions, that is absolutely an option. I love this stuff. Would love to hop on a call with you. I will include a link in the show notes to find out more and see if we're a good fit to work together. Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. Welcome to today's episode on The Path, where we're bringing back Jason Olivier, who was a guest on episode 34 titled The Enneagram Explained, where we discussed how to dismantle and deconstruct most of the stress and suffering, mental and emotionally, that we experience in life. Today, we're going to utilize the Enneagram as a roadmap. However, we're gearing the conversation more towards how can we, as people and especially as men, how can we show up as the most powerful, clear, grounded, and healthy leaders, first and foremost for ourselves, because that provides the building blocks for how we lead our family, those that we love, and then any organization that we're a part of. So get ready for today's show. Let's get into it. Well, brother, welcome back to the path, dude. This is episode, well, time number two, we're having you on the show. So welcome back, my friend. It's always a refreshing opportunity to to learn with you and, uh, and yeah, I look forward to this conversation for sure and I've had a blast with our first one. So looking for part two, uh, looking forward to it, my friend. Absolutely, man. Me too. And and we will definitely put in the show notes the link to episode one, which was all around 
utilizing the Enneagram specifically to dismantle and uncover and start breaking down the root cause of mental and emotional suffering. And today, the more focus of of our discussion is definitely going to be to utilize the Enneagram as a roadmap, but to utilize it more in the context of leadership and even more specifically leadership of self. And one thing that I didn't share, we didn't go into in the last podcast we chatted with together is just having an understanding, uh, if you don't mind just sharing some brief background in some of your context in leadership or supporting leaders, and how have you used the Enneagram or what place has that served when you've been a supportive role in organizations or in leadership positions? Yeah, that's, uh, thanks, Mike. So uh, my background formally is in psychology and organizational management, so advanced degrees there, advanced degrees in administration. Um, that led into 20-plus uh, years in healthcare in particular as an industry, and that was me being in senior consultant roles as well as administrative roles within hospital settings, specifically pediatric hospitals. And um, I spent all of that time also executive coaching from board members, C-suite leaders, C-suite meaning CEOs, CFOs, COOs, chief operating officers, chief executive officers, you know, vice presidents, uh, operational leaders, uh, et cetera. And then, you know, been coaching not only uh, quote-unquote holistic health coaching, but also a lot of executive coaching. So worked with a lot of vice presidents in various industries, uh, worked with executives from Procter & Gamble to name a sum and drop a couple of company <laughs> names. Uh, I've worked with people and leaders from Amazon and, and et cetera. So I've had a fair share of for-profit and non-for-profit uh, organizations and leaders across the board. Very cool. And when you were sharing that around your role in supporting leaders in the realm of pediatrics, just curious, just for some context, and one, you have a daughter, I have a new son. Sure. And so the the, the weight or, uh, yeah, just the weight of what having solid and effective leadership can have, and also when it's not in place, some of the consequences that can come along with that. Would you mind just sharing just for a little context in the realm of what you saw in pediatrics, if that's applicable, what were some of the consequences of poor leadership or well, not well-executed leadership? Um, there's a lot. So the primary ones I would say is ineffective care, uh, unsafe care, uh, costly care. So there's th those are the main things. So uh, attention to detail, conflict resolution, creating a safety culture, a culture where it's okay to raise and voice concerns. So, you know, that's purely a byproduct of the environment that the leader creates within that business unit or across the enterprise. Uh, a lot of times in healthcare, historically, nurses, you know, resisted telling physicians and challenging physicians when they're prescribing something or they want to order something uh, you know, you might have a resident physician who is one year out of uh, medical school working with a nurse who's got 20 years under her belt. And a lot of times it's like, I have 20 years of grinding and I know and I've seen certain patterns. And in the past, a lot of times they've raised concerns. And if they don't have proper leadership to support, the physician says, I'm the prescriber. 
leave me alone. Don't tell me how to do my job. And then I've seen that lead to medical errors, medication errors, et cetera. Whereas when the leader, when that does happen, does the leader come into that situation and have the willingness and the courage and curiosity to figure out, hey, what happened? Why did it happen? And specifically um, to challenge the physician around best practices and around a culture and environment that says it's okay to be challenged and the ego reactivity to that um, in managing that through so that relationships weren't destroyed or upset. You know, I, I would say if I had a dollar for how many times I've saw that, it was a lot. So that's just one small example. How teams work together, conflict resolution, um, how decisions get made, how far down they get made, trust, respect. I mean, all the things that also are applicable to leadership outside of, you know, pediatric hospitals for sure. What I'm hearing from that is, and this dovetails or piggybacks on our last discussion, that a lot of this work, and we're using leadership as the context for this conversation, but we use it, yeah, we'll just go ahead. I mean, leadership, effective leadership is by and large an inside job or how effective we are and our willingness to look at what we do well, where we make mistakes, self-accountability, self-responsibility, the courage to step up and enter into uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable situations with the objective of productivity. So all of this stuff, and it fits perfectly in our conversation today around this whole realm is it by and large is an inside job if we want to step into being the most effective and empowered leader possible. And with leadership specifically and all of these topics that we discuss, one of the things I think it's really important for context, because language is important, language words hold meaning to people and what they represent to people. And so for the context of our chat right now, can you share a definition of leadership or how do you view leadership personally? And then that'll help inform where we're going to go next. Yeah. Um, so for me, the ability to know yourself intimately which means that I understand my strengths and my limitations. Good leaders have clarity with that. And as a result, there's clarity around who do I need to support and surround myself with, who can both complement uh, what we would say is opportunities or weaknesses, uh, as well as the courage to challenge a leader on their strategy and their thinking, uh, to their potential decision-making, the uh, ability to uh, therefore regulate their themselves emotionally. There's a whole lot of literature on emotional intelligence and its impact on leadership. One who's very clear on the vision and mission of where they want the company to go, whether it's an N of one, an N of a dozen or hundreds or thousands of employees, what's the, what's the vision and where do, we, where do I want ideally to go? Just for clarity, when you say N of one, you mean just like a one-person company? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like entrepreneurship, yeah. solo entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, like exactly. Yeah. Across the whole gamut. And the ability to create an environment that, and they call it, they refer to as, as culture, organizational culture that sets the culture, sets the tone, the unwritten rules around how we're going to function and operate, uh, which needs to be, I would propose, rooted in respect and trust. So that's some of the definitions and components of how I think about leadership. Yeah, that's super helpful to know and to hear. And, and you recently led or facilitated a, 
uh, a coaching call or a presentation call for one of my groups, the Path to Inspired Action, which is a men's group with the focus and the goal is to men stepping into their most authentic self, living a life in alignment and recognizing when they're out of alignment with their values, and then stepping forward, potentially most importantly, especially for men, from this place of action, but from a place that feels heart-centered and inspired. Mm -hmm. And you had shared something in there that was a big takeaway for multiple members of the group, myself included. And I'd love for you to share this perspective as it relates to especially leadership of self. How does leadership differ from management? And do any examples or any context come up with that? Sure. So, you know, I've outlined leadership there. For me, the delineation between that and management is Management and managers look at the day-to-day operational execution. They're worried and thoughtful and considerate and strategic at a different level. They don't necessarily have their eyes on the horizon, but they have their eyes on what do I have to do today and this week to ensure customer satisfaction? Uh, What are the deliverables that we need to accomplish to execute on the vision that the leader Uh, has set forth? What are the strategic goals? Um, Where do we need to be in a year from now or a quarter from now or a week or a month from now? And how do those resources within the company get managed on a daily basis to a budget, uh, to a staffing level, uh, ensuring customer service, as I mentioned? So to me, getting clear that there's managing work and then there's leading work. And sometimes we think both are the same. And I would propose that there are different talents, different skills, and different knowledge that are needed for different levels within the organization or company. And, and, and to your point, Mike, before when I said the N of one, you know, entrepreneurs, and I would even suggest this for myself, is um, you have to try to figure out with your resources, whether it's financial or otherwise, is where can I bend? What skills do I have to learn that's maybe managerial or operational? Where I want it, where I want to maybe spend my time in more leadership capacity, but maybe the demands of my N of one or just a handful of you know of people on the team, you know, requires me to wear multiple hats for different reasons and different times. And I think it's important for leaders to know what hat am I wearing? Is this the leadership hat or is this the management hat? Uh, for day-to-day stuff. Yeah, that's super important because what what it's bringing up for me, especially someone, whether it's an entrepreneur or just someone desiring to be a more powerful leader of themselves. I mean, if you're, I mean, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're just, again, trying to do the best job you can to lead yourself and then your family and so on. Like there's a lot of hats that we have to wear. I may have shared this with you outside uh, on an outside call, but I'm continually surprised, humbled, and to some extent shocked at how much goes into being a, being a solid entrepreneur or being a solid leader of self. And so would you say that leadership is a prerequisite when you're leading yourself to management? Because the way that I'm hearing from you, management, I'm like, okay, what are the tasks that I'm doing each day? Maybe how am I communicating with different members on like, if I have contract, like editors and stuff like that, kind of like the nitty gritty day to day, how I manage myself, my energy, maybe my four doctors, but then leadership 
what I'm hearing you say is like, okay, what's my one-year vision, my three, my five years? How does that involve my family? Can you explain, like, do you feel it's a prerequisite or how does that fit in? Um, For me, as it relates to this is there's talent, skills, and knowledge that we all bring to the table. So some of which I am going to be, or some of the types on the Enneagram, for example, are going to be biased towards leadership roles. Some of them are going to be more in the management roles. And because we have all nine types within us, there's an oscillation, just like breath. We breathe in, breathe out. There's all kinds of metaphors we could use. At the end of the day, I would propose that those who have the awareness of what I'm really good at, the awareness of what I'm satisfactory at, and that which I can, if I could avoid it at all costs and outsource it, because I know my limitations or where I think my bang for the buck of where I want to spend my time. I think that's really important to get really clear with those three buckets. We also have to, I think, you don't have to, but I would invite people to acknowledge that there will be times that you have to spend time in all three of those categories. So if you don't know yourself and you don't know your limitations and you're about to participate in actions that you by default resist, it could be symptomatic of procrastination. It could be symptomatic of self-sabotage. Or you can lean into it and say, I feel uncomfortable. And then how do I want to regulate myself and manage myself through that? Because maybe you don't have the financial resources to outsource and spend 10000 15000 on um, a marketing strategy. So um, therefore, you know, I'm going to have to spend my time investing in the nuances of this and make a calculated decision of what I think is best overall for me. So ultimately, to come back to this, is I think there's an, a, a needed skill set, knowledge, understanding, and innate talent understanding and oscillating between all of that. And then when you have the strategy down or you have the budget or you have uh, the, the support around you that you can outsource that with confidence, then I'm sure, you know, like most, uh, we'll outsource it as fast as we can because on some cliches, you know, time is money. So we want to be as efficient as we can and as effective as we can. Yeah, 100%. And so many of the listeners, now we've got male and female listeners, but predominantly this is a male listenership. And many, many men, at least that I'm coming across, and I know now doing more interviews with people listening to the show, one of the things that many of them are desiring, whether they're already in an intimate relationship already fathers or have a desire to be fathers, I'm curious in a relationship, and I know we're going to be focusing a lot on the I for today's conversation, but with this delineation of leadership and management, what comes up for you as examples or context around leadership versus management in an intimate relationship? Uh, Does anything come up there? Like how can that look or what's possible there? Yeah. What comes up for you? Getting really clear about what kind of partnership I want and why I want it, um, that was a long journey for me and in this uh, domain and area of life. So I had to learn from my bumps and bruises about what I didn't want to test the waters about what I do want. Uh, that's really important. Number two, having 
clarity or as much clarity as you can with personal core values and then seeing how that aligns with your potential partner or your current partner, uh, inviting them to do something similar, uh, which is what I've done, and then talking together and say, what are our joint values? So for me, that's about, as a leadership role, being clear with myself, inviting my partner, and then co-creating those values. So it's not, for me, as simple of vulnerability. There we go. There's my value. I want to be vulnerability with my, I want to be vulnerable with myself and with my partner. It is actually describing what does that mean? What's that term for me? And how does it show up in my relationship? Or how do I want it to show up in my relationship? So it's spending a fair amount of time being able to be clear within myself, mind and heart about what my values represent to me. And to me, that sets the tone as we uh, have gone through so many other trainings together about the idea around you don't have uh, a yes until you learn to say no and or vice versa. So it's hard to have healthy limits and boundaries with yourself and with your partner if you don't know your value set. So I think from a leadership standpoint and trying to provide uh, functional masculine leadership for me is about being clear with that and inviting my partner to join me on that ride. As it relates to management, I mean, there's just practical things that we both need to get done every day and every week. So um, we try to do a good job. Um, if you were to see over my left shoulder here, uh, I have uh, a big posty note. You know, it's about, I don't know, two and a half feet by four feet and it is a tacky piece of paper. And basically on Sunday evenings, we typically, not all the time, but by default, go through what did, what was last week like? What do we need to do for this upcoming week? Who's going to do it? When do we, what day of the week does it ideally need to be done by? And then we tack it behind the door and it's always glaring in the face. We don't get everything done all the time. Uh, and we can punt it for a couple of weeks when we're supposed to be done with it yesterday, full transparency. But it's always there to remind us what have we prioritized from a management of the house, uh, of the things that we said that we want to get done for the house or for spending time together or going out or doing something for, of course, inner compass. And, OK, I need to upgrade this. I need to do that. Um you know, Z, what can you think you can help me with to offset some of this um, in the afternoons this week? And then she'll say, well, I can help with this and this. And so those are the small things that we've learned. Well, I'll speak for myself that I've learned in my experience together and myself of managing things that seem to be really helpful. Uh, touching base, you know, having those conversations more frequently. When we don't, we pay the consequences. We make all kinds of assumptions. Uh, the projection game builds up versus, hey, let's have, let, let's, how is your week going? How can I, what, what's your needs in this moment? I'm experiencing stress in my body. Are you stressed? You know, um, and having those conversations together, I think, uh, also have been really helpful in regards to this leadership versus just trying to manage the relationship functionally and being honest with each other in communications. 
you know, and so, you know, we talk about those things all the time. Well, that, that for me feels like one of the hallmarks of a healthy relationship because, you know, just speaking from my personal experience, Lauren has voiced, you know, her, the pain point, for example, is taking an approach of divide and conquer. And maybe there's certain times in life where that could be helpful, but one of the, the, the core values of our relationship is to foster team. And that doesn't necessarily mean as, as I'm learning and discovering this myself, being newly married, like that doesn't mean we need to do everything together. But what that looks like in a practical sense, in a very similar way that you just described very well and eloquently is kind of having like family board meetings so that there's at least clarity so that we both feel while we may have different strengths and different things that we can tackle utilizing our skill sets, we come together first. And then from that point, we move some things together, some things separate, as opposed to, see ya, <laughs> see ya, I'm going to go on with my day and then you're going to go. And then at the end of the day, it's like, well, one, we didn't have time to connect. We weren't on the same page. We weren't feeling like we were moving on the right direction. And so the clarification of personal values, relationship values, then the nitty gritty things of like, what's the direction that we're heading? And then what are the day-to-day things? And all of that, for me, that communication and that conversation how I experience it and feel it in the body, it feels like the energy of team. And that feels to be the most aligned relationship that I want to have, where we both feel like we are uh, moving through life together, even though we may have different responsibilities at times. I think that's uh, well said. Um, And it's to your point, it's a dance because um, another value that I have is autonomy. So, uh, and I've outlined what that means for me, what that means for her. And I know that when we honor ourselves and each other's autonomy, there is something to be said about how, for me, that fosters the team. And it's like breath again, you know, if I don't have my space for me to be me and have be autonomous and vice versa, (laughs) it feels smothering. Or it feels crowded and it's just nice to have, to be thinking about the complexity sometimes of the human being and all of these different values that are in play, some spoken, some unspoken. And I think to your point leads to pain points. And then how do you negotiate? When is it time to be vulnerable and intimate and team? And when do you, when is it that I need to, uh, have some autonomy, and how do I ask for that for myself, and ask of that within the relationship, and and vice versa? Yeah, yeah, that's very clear. And I'm curious because I know you said earlier that this has been paraphrasing, but like a lifelong journey, right? And potentially, maybe it always is. Did you personally meet resistance? I know your partner Zaina is is very much aligned with this work, and I know has done a bunch of uh, deep work herself. I'm curious if you can describe kind of like the journey getting you to where you are and also if someone's listening, like oftentimes in partnership, not always, but you have one person who very much immerses themselves into this work, super passionate, they get all this stuff, but then their partner might have a completely different occupation or just not be there yet. Do you have any suggestions on how we can bridge or how someone listening can kind of energize 
like the fundamental steps heading into it? I know you shared the core values. Is there anything else that comes up in how we can energize from a, like a ground foundation level to begin opening these conversations so we can have more of that team environment? Step number one, I, th- I would always invite each person individually to do their own inner work. Uh, don't wait for the other person. Uh, depending upon your Enneagram type, we by default uh, are codependent. And until we recognize our codependent patterns, it becomes really difficult to untangle from the partnership in what I would say stereotypically is in a dysfunctional manner to look within yourself and figure out what do I need for me? And your earlier point, you know, leadership is an inside job. I also would piggyback and say one's happiness fundamentally is an inside job. And if we look to our partner to complete us, you know, you are the wind beneath my wings and all that fun, you know, lovey-dovey movies and songs that facilitate a huge amount of codependency, you know, you're in trouble, you know, in my opinion. Uh, I was, you know, as a type one on the Enneagram, uh, I saw imperfections in self in my partner in the world. And so my default was I'm going to fix. So for me to stop that one, to know that that's the pattern that I was living out mostly unconsciously, but as my knowledge in the Enneagram knew, I saw it, but felt compulsive to do it anyway. Um, you have to get aware of your those patterns, those ingrained patterns of thinking, feeling, emoting, behaving, sensing, etc. And find that within myself is my answers. So long-winded to say you got to go inward and stop looking for the relationship to be your lifeline. Uh, number two is from that space I would offer is be invitational. Like if I were to tell my younger Jason, I would say is the path forward is uh, invitational, being curious and being respectful and reminding myself that I'm not there to fix the other person. And it, as through those and having conversations, uh, et cetera, and hopefully through behaviors, they see a difference. Uh, they may not. They might get scared and intimidated and overwhelmed and confused. I've heard, uh, not. I've literally been told in the past that you're becoming someone I don't know anymore. And, you know, if uh, in that moment, in part of me was confused, you know, I've been with this person for a long time. Part of me is like, well, it actually makes sense why you might say that. And um, so what I'm offering is that it's not a path that will guarantee you warm and fuzzy relationship at the end of the day. It might be the catalyst to actually functionally help you move on in life and to be the leader of the I that we were talking about And that the we, your family, your future family, whatever that looks like, uh, the cliche is they'll be there when you're ready. And I think there is something to that. Um, And I think and feel like 
Zayna showed up in a time in my life that uh, I guess the universe, uh, it was just perfect. It was, it is what it is. And it really exposed me quickly to the relationship that I do want. And so going full circle on this, you know, Zane and I, one of our values is that we don't need each other at all for our happiness and for our life and et cetera. But we want each other. I want you, but I don't need you for my happiness. And we're really clear and we do remind each other of that periodically. And so when I found her in my life uh, and how I experienced it, um, my leadership for myself changed. How I represented myself changed and continued to grow. And she was, I think, in my opinion, she was in a space that respected that and honored that in a manner that I had not experienced in the past. So I stepped into uh, my leadership of, of the relationship and my masculine energy increased in ways that um, I might have suppressed it to make peace with my past. And her softness and her feminine energy came right to the surface and subsequently softened. I used that as a means to soften me up in my leadership uh, with myself and then supporting us and vice versa. So we both had beautiful, for me, complementary leadership roles that felt very much uh, like the Tao, right? The flow of life. And it felt uh, pretty cool. So that's that's my my spiel on on dancing and flowing with my leadership within relationships and trying to navigate that space. Yeah, the, the last thing maybe is the perfectionist or the improver in me would think, I need to do this to save the relationship. Very externally focused. Whereas um, consciously and unconsciously, I had been doing that for so long and I was getting burned I was burning myself with my own suffering with those strategies. So really want to, I would encourage anyone just to go inward, uh, know yourself clearly so that you know what you need with healthy limits and boundaries. And by being, I think, and feel like by inviting yourself on that journey, then it fosters the potential of a relationship to elevate itself inherently or not. And you'll know the answer. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that big time. I appreciate that. And one of the things that came up is, and and I'm going to be in this podcast discussing much more topics related to the Enneagram, but more importantly, the inner compass assessment and that whole system that you've developed, because it is, in my experience, incredibly holistic and just what you shared earlier to really anchor that point in around we are all nine types and the purpose of it is really not to put us in a box or in a cage but it's really to illuminate the cage that we're already in so that we can empower ourselves and walk ourselves out of it and having it as a tool for personal exploration personal growth leadership management has been invaluable to me but then also having the knowledge of my partner too and what's what me and you joke about offline is like your core type's type one, as is mine. And our partners are type twos, so the helper. And But having that 
that knowledge of the core underlying motivations driving the behaviors that are enacted each day has been one of the, yeah, just one of the most uh, empowering tools. And in fact, and you know this very well, it's step one for anyone now doing any coaching with me, the retreat work. It's uh, It opens up for me conversations that with clarity and also um, gives a little bit of language to how I've experienced both the beauty aspects in myself and in the relationship and in her and also the challenges. And so with that and bringing it all full circle now, utilizing the Enneagram and even more specifically the inner compass assessment that you've designed, how can we use some of the knowledge of it to help us be more effective leaders, especially of self. And in our la- just to call out in our last episode, for anybody listening, and I'll put it in the show notes, but we went through every single Enneagram type and Jason discuss- discussed pros, cons, light, shadow, some of the core motivations of each type. So definitely check out that because for the sake of making this the most efficient and potent discussion possible, we won't be going into every single type, but I want to start there. How do you utilize and can you give some practical examples of a few types in relation to leadership? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So the first thing we do is, you know, put, ask people to take the assessment Uh, They get a score uh, across all nine types. They get a core type. And then they have the eight other ancillary types that come and go in shades of gray or different degrees of. So there are types that we move towards and there's types that we move away from. Both are in service of helping meet our core type psychological uh, needs to get met so that we alleviate that mental, emotional stress or suffering or whatever term, uh, dissatisfaction, whatever word we want to use. And so how that ultimately plays out in leadership is we can look at those scores and someone can say, I want to be a more effective leader, Jason. I've had this many, many times. Um, You know, I'm struggling in, let's just say, uh, motivating my team or I'm struggling with how to influence, or I'm struggling with regulating my own anger. When we don't hit our goals or things don't work out well, I overreact. Um, How do I manage myself? Um, And the sky's the limit. Um, Succession planning, just pure leadership development, et cetera. So we just, first, we got to get clear about what's the core type, right? And so then when we understand the core type, We understand, for example, the type one, uh, their core belief is that they're imperfect and they have the shame of being bad, character flaw, bad, and the fear of mistakes, that I'm going to make a mistake, someone else is going to make a mistake, and the world is filled with mistakes. So unconsciously, that's already believed in, like 100%. uh, And this is what I have to emphasize to executives, because executives in many ways are quite successful in different continuums. So sometimes the strategies that they have used to compensate for being imperfect, I'm now shining a light on and saying, it might be causing you a lot of consequences and not so much benefit as you thought it was as you're entering a different phase of the business or people's sensitivity to that habituated pattern 
the tolerance of it is getting lower and lower. So as the business maybe gets bigger and you're working with more people and you're hiring more people, um, you have to be a little more sensitive on how you're trying to navigate and sustain that culture. So we look at those assessments and we look at your results. Um, and so from there, you know, there are types within the report that will indicate you might be low on your connection to your emotions. So that's one of the things that I will look at. So the type two, four, and nine scores of an individual who's a type one, in particular, a lot of times type ones will have low four scores and low nine scores. Um, and so creating a roadmap for leaders to improve in ways in which they want to improve their leadership, we need a roadmap. And for me, that's what the inner compass provides is clarity of the root cause. Why do I do what I do with my behaviors? What am I compensating for? How am I over-relying on those compensations? And how do I avoid certain things all in service of that false belief? So we go down that road. So people who have a hard time with teammates or working in teams or that emotional intelligence piece, if they have a low four, nine score, it's a clear marker or indicator that for the type one, they see their emotions as something that needs to be bottled up and that I need to communicate a certain image of perfection. I need to uh, create an image, not to say an image, but I have to carry and conduct myself in such a way that I can't make any mistakes. And so the internal pressure that that puts on someone um, over time, chronically, creates burnout. So as just one example with the type one, uh, the, yeah. And Jason, can I ask you, as you're breaking these down, can you mind sharing some of like the archetype, for example, like the type one being the perfectionist, the four and the nine, and what those represent? Sure. So the type nine is typically known as the mediator or the peacekeeper. And the type four is the individualist or the artist. So they're ones where uniqueness and difference um, and being emotionally intense uh, is really artistic, uh, are really important to them. Um, so those are some of those features uh, with the type one. Uh, but with the type eight, uh, their primary focus is being a leader and a challenger. So their desire is to have big, hairy, audacious goals, all of which are to cover their false belief of I am powerless and I have the shame of being weak and the fear of being vulnerable. So it's kind of like the guy in the bar who's the smallest guy that wants to pick on the biggest guy, <laughs> uh, where they're overcompensating for feeling and physiologically or physically being the smallest guy in the bar. So they're going to take on the biggest guy so that they get respect. Uh, a lot of type eights who are inherently intense, big energy, want to be in the forefront. A lot of that energy is compensating for deep down, I feel powerless. So if I feel powerless, my main compensation strategy is I'm going to gain power. And by through exertion, challenging, et cetera. Uh, however, so they inherently have a lot of intense energy. They have a very good at having a vision and those big, hairy, audacious goals, as I mentioned. They love challenges. They love to be challenged. 
Uh, all of those things are important. They love the big decision. They want the tough decision. They want to create an environment where they're righting the wrongs uh, of the injustices that they see. Uh, they're a big underdog cheerleader. So all of those causes, they're really big in. At the same token, as a lot of leaders that I've met is they can be bull in a china shop. Like they have no grace. Mm. Uh, they're very intense. If you don't get on with them in their vision, they see you as a direct threat and an enemy. And subconsciously in self-sabotaging way, uh, they'll kick you out of the party or they'll kick you out of their inner circle because they don't feel like I can trust you because you're not on board with my vision, right? So working with leaders of that nature, you have to look at all of their other scores and say, what are the predominant ways in which they're compensating for that I am powerless beyond just their core type? And if they have a high one score, clearly they're going to use high standards, doing the right thing, uh, a sense of um, truth, a sense of uh, those being really structured and organized, but also judgmental. So if you don't meet their intense vision and standards, uh, you're if you're not rowing with me, then again, I'm going to use my judgment and, and kick you out. So working with a lot of eights who are in leadership roles, they need to become more sensitive. They need to become more soft. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to tap into other types, uh, like the type two, uh, like the type nine, um, that would really help soften them in regards to checking in with themselves, to know themselves, right? So the earlier conversations, know yourself as a leader, know what your limitations are. And then for another example would be a lot of times it's the type five. So the type five is the left brain analytical scientist, researcher. They love to take uh, apart all of those um, nooks and crannies of whatever topic they're most interested in and dissect it uh, and be very thoughtful, a deep planner and analyzer. So, um, which is beautiful. I've met and I've worked with several C-suite leaders who are type fives. Uh, however, they're very process oriented. So if they don't have uh, elevated scores in the one, in the three or the eight, uh, they're going to be very prone to analysis paralysis. So as a leader, um, I call it in a jokingly way, I call it a form of mental masturbation. No matter how much information they can take in, they still have more questions and they want to make sure that how they're getting and arriving at their answer uh, is the best way to do that. And is it replicatable? So they struggle with making real-time decisions. So they're always the ones who say, I need time to think about that. Now, depending upon the industry, uh, they might struggle with being able to make decisions that are helping the organization move forward. So, you know, you have to manage that. And so you invite them to say, well, what is it really that's holding you up from making a decision right now? And their core belief is around competence. If I don't have enough knowledge that I internally feel comfortable, I really believe that I would then be a leader that's incompetent. So we really have to then look at that underlying motivation that fuels the analysis of paralysis and the processing. Um, and so that when working with leaders is where I try to spend a lot of my time to look at those other scores 
And then what other resources internal to them uh, do they have working for them? And what are ways in which we need to coach through some of the ways in which they are compensating through aversion or through avoidance of how to really sit in and deal with that lack of competence? So we will definitely explore those kinds of underlying beliefs within their leadership roles and the objectives of what they're coming for coaching for. Yeah, that's super helpful. And one thing that comes up as a curiosity is when you look at, um, you know, let's say another type like the type two. So the archetype, for example, of the helper, who tends to be more geared towards supportive roles. So if you're in, for example, your core type, for example, specifically, isn't in one of those that prioritizes navigating and managing life towards tasking goals, leadership, but might be more of a supportive role. And yet they find that, like, I know, I think you and I were talking the other day, like I have a, a, a former client who is the head of a fairly large company and his core type is a type two. And so I'm curious when you have someone who has a core type that maybe isn't by default predisposed to tasking goals and leadership functions or even processing and thinking stuff, not that they don't use that, right? Because we're all types, but for the sake of this conversation, what insight can you provide if you're someone who is, for example, we'll use that as a type two, what challenges and or opportunities if they find themselves in a leadership role or they desire to lead their family more effectively or themselves or a company they work for? Yeah, so I would say for several of the types, type two, type four, the nine, uh, even parts of the type six, um, and even parts of the, the type three, even themselves at times, don't necessarily like to be in leadership roles that I would say we would stereotypically classify leadership as, you know, the extrovert, um, the one in the room trying to woo everybody, uh, trying to market and influence and secure funding, uh, doing the presentations and speaking in front of a lot of people, by default, they don't enjoy any of that. Now, if their scores are elevated in any of the other types that do enjoy doing that, that softens the resistance to doing that. So that's one. Uh, number two, though, is that you know, there's the saying that everyone is a leader. Uh, there's that phrase or tagline quite a bit. And again, it all goes into how we define leadership first and foremost. And secondly is, I would propose that um, based on how we define leadership, that, that can be very true. Uh, so as we were talking the other day, uh, type twos, when they're given a leadership role within the ways in which they feel comfortable and support, a vision or a mission, but they're not the main person that's in the spotlight to organize a team and get the team focused and kind of guide the team or lead the team through certain milestones or deliverables that need to be achieved. Uh, they can feel very comfortable doing that. Um, so it depends upon context. It depends upon their inner resources. It depends upon how willing they're willing to be uncomfortable and, and stretch even themselves. Uh, all of those, I think, are in play. So, uh, you know, that's to me how I think and feel about 
the strengths and limitations of leadership. You know, it even goes back to Mike when we, we when we refer to the type one, the type eight, and the type five. Yes, many of them are by default uh, trying to be in leadership roles. Uh, but I've met a lot of one eights and fives that man, you ought not be in a leadership role. <laughs> um, so I think it always goes back for me is, do you know yourself? And are you the leader of I? Because if not, just because you have the predisposition of feeling very comfortable of talking in front of people and supposedly taking the lead or initiating something doesn't make you a good leader. So it can work both ways and both it's bi-directional. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And one thing I'll do the best I can to, I think you'll understand where I'm going with this question because you and I were just talking about it right before we hopped on and you, you shared like a beautiful reflection and a powerful one for me around when we have this awareness, for example, of our motivations. So for example, let's just take the type one. That's the one I'm most intimately connected with because that's my core type. The type one is here, I think you briefly shared earlier, tends to have high standards, right? And you shared something like that's not necessarily a bad thing. And then you explain that in two different energies that can kind of uh, someone can experience around. Can you uh, describe that and how maybe that can relate to some of the types? Because I thought it was really, really powerful. Yeah. So, you know, the type one, they come from a place of at times, most of the time, lack uh, and feeling, uh, you know, I am imperfect, right? Which we talked about. And I am uh, the shame of being bad and the fear of mistakes. So the archetype or the main compensation pattern for that is to improve, to fix. So when we come from a place of lack and see through that lens, then therefore I want to create high standards because somehow if I can create a high standard and then therefore fulfill it, it will alleviate my feeling imperfect. It will alleviate I'm bad and it will alleviate that uh, I made a mistake. No matter how brief that experience is, there'll be a, um, it's like when you haven't had that drink or that candy bar in a while and <laughs> you have it and you're like, oh man, this feels good. <laughs> it, it's, it's that little blip of, of pleasure that you get to say, for even for a few minutes, knowing that I don't have this deep nagging sensation in the body that I'm imperfect. And then the proverbial, okay, uh, let's get up in the morning and do it all over again, you know, and, and the imperfections are right back. So, you know, having high standards as a byproduct of that energetic signature or that mental and emotional perspective uh, is a grind. It's never fulfilling. It's never satisfying. Whereas if I learn to know myself in the leadership of I, and I understand what I am outside of and who I am outside of the constraints of those limiting core beliefs. And as a result of that, I know that fulfillment in my essential nature is not what I believe myself to be, 
then my standards and all of my desires to make anything better comes from a place of sharing my heart and my mind and my talents, but not because I feel like I'm coming from a place of lack. And that's a very different energy. It's a very different uh, mental and emotional place. Uh, I would say is one is led by the mind versus being led by the heart. Um, There's all kinds of ways sometimes which we refer to this. But unfortunately, most of us are stuck in identifying ourselves with with our ideas and our beliefs and our mind and our body, so to speak. So we say, hey, I am my personality and therefore my personality describes me. And then that notion gets us into trouble. And therefore, you know, the high standards come from a I lack perspective. So, and this applies for all the types, right? So the type two, which our partners are, is, you know, the idea that I am worthy. And then I have the fear of being rejected and the shame of not being valued. So what ultimately happens is, is if they try to be in a relationship, therefore they're helpers, right? So if I am helping someone in order to get those needs met, I am going to be a chronic codependent helper. Whereas I have learned how to uh, connect and care for myself outside of the approval and validation of others through helping. I've learned how to do that for myself, the leadership of I. Therefore, my helping comes from a place of I'm sharing my heart with you. And whether you want my help or not, I'm good. And even if you say no, thank you, I'm solid. My dependency on me being able to help you is no longer invested in. So therefore, when someone says, no, I don't need your help, I'm not triggered. I'm not trying to find for an alternative way to help you because help is how I resolve even temporarily my needs. So you know, when you, when you want to go retro, go backwards to the type one, the high standards, which you ultimately asked me is, ultimately is, am I giving to get or am I giving to share with no strings attached is another way to consider that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because like with the awareness, you can catch yourself in the act, right? And then you can, right. you have a choice to reparent yourself in a healthy way and, and choose an alternative solution. And uh, I'm going to venture to say, at least for me personally, like a good deal of this, because it's so unconsciously driven and so programmed from early on in childhood, it's like a lot of this stuff is life's work. And we'll have many examples of this and opportunities and tests, but uh, it just keeps showing up for me personally. And it's like, in some ways, I feel like I've learned the lesson. And in many ways, because it's like, I don't catch myself until Lauren says something or whatever. And so some of this does feel like life's work uh, and a process of of a lot of time and, and continually knowing ourselves and continually being able to witness right the 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 stress that comes in filtering it through our core motivations understanding our default responses in the moment checking in reparenting or not utilizing tools so it's like a there's a process and uh this is big work, man. I, I'm, yeah. that, that's my perspective of it. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey for sure. 
I appreciate the notion of that, Mike, and the idea that the journey is a lot of times unlearning what we've learned. And it's also so refreshing to have conversations like this and because it validates an experience that oftentimes how I'll describe it is because these things are so ingrained, like many times it feels like you hit, like I hit like, or clients too, in in different words, they've shared this, like, I feel like I'm hitting a dead end. I keep going to the same thing and the same thing. And maybe, you know, in their personal life, they've uh, learned to reparent, but then it's completely effing different when you're in a relationship, like there's similarities and they build off each other. But when you are faced with someone with completely different history, completely different or similar motivations than you and all this stuff, it's, uh, I keep, it just keeps coming up recently, but like, this is the real spiritual work. Like many parts of me wants to run to the top of the mountain and meditate and be the hermit. And then I have to remind myself of like, bro, you need to, you need to come back because, uh, this is really where, where you have the most opportunity, at least at this phase of life to grow as a father, as a husband, and then leadership of team and self. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) All I can say is absolutely. And amen, man. As we close this out, there is one additional question that I wanted to touch on because in relationship to the men that I'm leading within myself and clients, there's this theme of, of course, the desire to be the most effective, uh, powerful, grounded, inspired, et cetera, leader, whatever word you want to describe to that. And yet there's oftentimes this feeling or thought that comes up that I don't trust myself or I'm indecisive. Like I'm more connected to my distrust than I am my trust. Like I, I think you shared this the other day, like I trust my distrust. Can you unpack that a little bit and then share what insights can you provide to someone who's on this path, you know, doing the work and really desiring to come from a place of trusting themselves at a deeper level? It's a good one. So first and foremost, Understanding that false belief, I feel like, is really a linchpin to really trying to uh, unravel this story and unravel the attachments to the uh, trusting of the distrust. So, for example, we share the core type one, not to throw the ones under the bus here today, but... uh, (laughs) We have a fear of mistakes. So when I'm on the verge of uncertainty, if I know that that's my core belief, the default will be when I feel uncertain about my ability to not make a mistake, that that trust of my distrust kicks in. And from that place, Psychologically, we call it a trance. I enter a trance. I lose my inner resources, my breathing, my heart rate changes. I get very myopic. Uh, We all do this in shades of gray and we get stuck. So uh, that's one big factor for me is to see that process for you in some version of that occur. And that's why I think taking the assessment and getting clear about your core type, which would then get clear about that core motivation and say, ah, you know, there's a phrase sometimes that's referred by other teachers of you can't let something go until you know what it is. And I've always appreciated that. So 
um, the ambiguity about this topic of trust, unless you, in my opinion, know what specifically is the mechanisms by which I facilitate myself into distrusting or trusting my distrust and understanding my false core beliefs on how that is the gateway in which I enter into that, it's really hard, in my experience, uh, to find and understand and navigate that so that you are in a place to surrender and let go of something that ultimately you know what you're letting go. Those are things I would invite people to consider. And as it relates to trust, the other things you could consider is, is become very sensitive to the thought patterns that you tell yourself that induce the trance. And uh, invite people to have a little fun with it and uh, be willing to have the courage to look at it and have some compassion around it. But all end also ultimately explore the idea that, uh, for example, I used to have a friend who I used to have a conversation with and they didn't want to step up into a leadership per, uh, role. Ultimately, they didn't want to challenge this important uh, person uh, whom they were working with. And the question that they constantly came back that I picked up as a pattern was, why does it, it doesn't even matter if I say something. What, what's the big, what's going to change anyway? Those questions was so seductive and it so facilitated them into avoiding the conversation because they didn't want to be perceived as not having their shit together. They didn't want to be perceived as being successful. So that question was, boom, their version of facilitating them into a trance, of being indifferent. And then as that leader still made that decision, they would retrospectively kick their ass and say, I knew that that was going to happen, but yet I didn't. And they would minimize it and just keep moving forward. So that's an example where if we, if we don't notice those questions or those statements we make that psychologically induce us into distrusting or not trusting our innate gut or our instinct on something, that's another strategy you could consider. And then also uh, explore things as to where did you learn in childhood that trusting your distrust saved your ass? Where did you learn that pattern from? How old were you? Um, what have been the benefits and the consequences of your trusting of your distrust? Of course, it would be helpful to have a most of the time a coach to help invite you to these empowering open-ended questions to explore that in the presence of somebody else. There is a way in which that answer leads to the next question, open-ended question that leads to the next. So, so it leads you into an exploratory way of understanding where those things are coming from. So those are a couple of things I'll throw out there for consideration. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Cause also in, in the, in the realm of coaching and as you and I have had many discussions, that's different than consulting, 
right? You're wearing a coaching hat with the goal of ultimately to guide, facilitate someone, like generalizing, but to come to their own conclusions. In part two, what I've seen it create very powerfully is when you're in these settings, especially when it's guided well, it's, um, and even just receiving my own coaching, the coach E almost gets to step into more of the role of like this energy of relaxing potentially a little bit. It's like, because like, even when I guide breath work, people could do somatic breath work on their own. They could do it, but there's a different energy when they can just sit back and be a part of the experience without having the need or expectation to, you know, uh, lead guide, whatever, so they can relax more into the experience and, and that coaching realm when it's done well, it's like you were saying, the, the energy of invitation, the feminine energy, it's as opposed to telling you what I think you should do, which is like an arrogant way to go about it. And who knows? Uh, how anybody should live their life other than themselves. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful tool. And I've come over these years just to value coaching more and more, which directly stems from my experience in being coached and being coached well. And we definitely will include a link in the show notes to your Inner Compass site. But as we close out, would you mind sharing with people if they wanted to get in contact with you, do an interpretation? Because that's, I'll also give a point. The assessments that you would take through Jason's site, incredibly powerful, incredibly insightful. And setting up a one-on-one session, whether it's with Jason, myself, or another coach, it goes levels and levels uh, deeper and applicable to what someone's goals, objectives for why even they're coming to the call. So where can people contact you uh, and any insights you want to share on that? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So um, my main website is innercompass9, the number nine, I-N-N-E-R-C-O-M-P-A-S-S, the number nine.com. Uh, on there, as Mike said, you have multiple options if you wanted to take just the assessment or get into the deep dive review that highlights uh, your own inner leadership um, and explore what all of your scores in your graph represent and mean. Uh, that's also an offering there. I'm on Instagram on intercompass9 is my handle. Um, and my email is jason at intercompass9.com. Beautiful, brother. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for your time, your energy, and uh, always just showing up, bro. Showing up. Uh, So I appreciate you. And, uh, you know, I'm confident that what you shared today will definitely be some uh, more than a handful of gems for people to sit and reflect on and come to their own conclusions. So, yeah, appreciate you very much for all the support you've given me and what you're doing in the world. As always, Mike, it's returned. Uh, thank you. Love you, brother. Appreciate our time together. Love you too, my man. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path, and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours. <laughs>